every now and then, someone will come to the church or call um, and ask for assistance with a bill that they're having trouble with or, or, or some other need. And we ask some questions of them, and we have parameters in which we'll consider uh, helping out. And one of the first things that I do to help the elders and deacons make the decision um, if, if, if we're going to assist them or not, is I ask them, I say, I need a copy of your bill and I need picture ID. The reason for this is pretty simple. It's the same reason that, we, that the, the, the police will ask you for your ID when they stop you. It's why the airline asks for your ID before allowing you to get on a plane. It's why a gun store would ask for ID before allowing you to purchase a firearm. It's why the state of Indiana asks for ID before they'll let you register to vote. In every case, it is to have something to show that you are who you claim to be before entrusting you with something of some level of importance. It's not that people inherently disbelieve you. Most people, generally speaking, don't lie about things like that. It's just that in order to entrust you with something that has some importance, we all have to have a reasonable level of assurance that we are, in fact, dealing with the correct person for the correct issue at hand. It would be somewhat irresponsible not to. So we go through a simple procedure to be reasonably certain that you're who you say you are and not an imposter. Oddly enough, while first century Roman soldiers did have a sort of dog tag type thing, uh, it was a little uh, lead cast, um, something with writing on it that they would put in a leather pouch and wear around their neck to identify them as who they are in case they're killed in battle or, you know, someone questions them about, you know, what unit they're really with or whatever, if they're a dessert, you know. They had a type of ID. But the average person in Palestine in the first century did not have any kind of ID. Apparently, it doesn't require a driver's license to drive an ox cart. The only situation in which they had anything that they would want to be having as some kind of identification was when they would pay their taxes. They would go into the tax booth pay their taxes, and they would say who they were. Now, when you're doing that, you have an interest in making sure that they put the right name on it. Because if they give the taxes, if they credit that to the wrong person, guess what? You have to pay your taxes over again. Wouldn't you all love to do that? So when they would pay their taxes and they would tell their name, they would actually write them a receipt with their name on it and give it to them that says, yes, this person has paid their taxes. And that was the only thing in the, uh, that time, in that region, 
that actually was something similar to any form of ID. So it was that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God didn't send along an ID that said, printed right on it, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He just said it for all to hear at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven, God spoke and said that for people to hear. Now, one would think that this would be sufficient proof for everyone who heard it forever. You're, if you were one of the people that was there and you saw Jesus get baptized and the Spirit descends like a dove and a voice from heaven proclaims, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, that would be something that would be unquestionable for the rest of your life. But strangely enough, no. John, who had baptized Jesus and heard this proclamation from God, had gotten himself arrested. From what I can tell, this happened fairly soon after the baptism of Jesus. John had committed the terrible crime of saying the truth about people in power. I know you find this kind of hard to believe, but when you tell the ugly truth about the wicked things done in the lives of people in power, they get upset and they try to silence you. Crazy, I know. That's just beyond belief. So John is sitting in prison and it would seem he started to have doubts. He had doubts about the the very single thing that his entire life from before conception had been about. Now, we shouldn't judge John too harshly for this. My guess is that if you or I got thrown into even a very modern, civilized prison, we might, after a time, start to wonder if maybe we'd gotten everything wrong. That maybe we had imagined it or misunderstood it. Now, imagine if this prison that you're sitting in isn't a jail cell that's kept clean and you have facilities and you're allowed to use the commissary and you get fed three times a day and the worst thing about it is your smelly cellmate. Instead of that, You are in basically a cave dug out beneath a palace or other governmental building. It's dark. It's cold. Probably wet. There's no light whatsoever. They just throw you in there and lock you in. And they feed you, you know... The what little you get is probably not cuisine. It's probably the cheapest, worst food imaginable. And there's no toilet. There's no bathing facilities. And you're left in there for the better part of a year. 
My guess is that would be a pretty bad time. You have no chance of a trial or even a hearing that would be fair to you because you said pretty nasty things about the big guy in charge and his wife. And she doesn't like you at all now. But you spoke the truth. And here you are for a long, long time. Add to that the fact that the person that you had been told was the Messiah by the voice from heaven wasn't really doing all of the things that you expected them to be doing. At this point, uh, this is what I mean by that. John had been a pretty big hellfire and brimstone preacher. You go back and read what John has to say. John, he says it like it is, and he doesn't care what you think. He tells you to get your act together. That's the kind of guy that John was. He was literally an Old Testament prophet. And he got into the role. He called the religious leaders a brood of vipers. He told people just exactly what they needed to do to straighten up. They came out to him by the Jordan and he said, you guys need to do this and you guys need to do that and you guys need to do this. Get your act together. Straighten up your lives. And when he tells what Jesus is going to be like, just before Jesus came and was baptized, he says of him this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff... He will burn with unquenchable fire. He's like, Jesus is coming, and he ain't going to like it very much. And then Jesus really wasn't doing any of that yet. In fact, he wasn't even condemning anyone for their actions as of yet, for the lifestyles that they were living. That didn't come until later in his ministry at this point. Jesus was all about love and healing and telling people about God, and that's it so far. And I think John was kind of like, wait, wait, what, what's going on here? Why isn't everything going the way that I thought it was going to go? And this brings us to our main passage for today. Now, um, if you're fairly new here, I, last week and this week, like half my sermon is scripture, and I make no apologies for that whatsoever. I just will tell you that's not my norm. I normally have about one page of scripture and five pages of text. In both last week and this week, it's like three pages of scripture, which is a good thing. Follow along with me, Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now this would seem to be kind of a strange answer that Jesus gives. He says to someone who has dedicated his entire life, literally from before he was conceived, preparing the way and the people for the Messiah that was to come to save them. Then terrible things happened to him for the simple act of following God's will in declaring truth. He's probably aware that there's a pretty good likelihood that his death is soon to come unless God were to intervene. And he reaches out to Jesus for help in his struggles, in his faith. He sends his own disciples to him with a straightforward question. And what he gets, at least to the eyes of most modern readers, is some kind of riddle for them to take back to him. This is supposed to change his mind? Or at least reassure the mind of someone who is having doubts even after he had heard the voice of God? I was once debating with an atheist... Nice guy. And he pointed to this as proof that the Bible wasn't real. He was like, look at this. This is just nonsense. John hears the word, the the voice of God, and he struggles with that, but he gets sent back this riddle, and that's supposed to convince him? Doesn't even make sense. That wouldn't steady his faltering faith. But here's the deal. The atheist that I knew, he was fairly well-read in the Bible, at least in the New Testament. Better than most Christians that I know, which is a shame. But he really didn't know the Old Testament much. Not, Not much of it was he familiar with, and he was only familiar with it in modern English translations. What he didn't realize was that this isn't some sort of riddle or flippant answer from Jesus. Well, you know, just look at my miracles, you doubter. Jesus was figuratively showing John's disciples his ID. He was like, you question who I am? You want to make sure I am who I say I am? Here's my ID. And he tells him, look at these things that are being done. It was as good to John as if Jesus had pulled out a driver's license, a social security card, and a passport. All of which read, Jesus of Nazareth, Redeemer, Deliverer, Savior, and Son of God. The question is, why? Why would that answer be so convincing to John? The answer is that John did know his Old Testament prophets. He knew them forward and backward. And we modern Christians who didn't grow up as Jewish children, we generally don't 
but we should. I'm going to make a confession. I'm not huge into the Old Testament prophets. I read them, but they're not my favorite parts. I like them better than when it's listing the names of people. It's more interesting than that. I like them better when it's, than when it's talking for chapters on end about the intricate details of how the tabernacle was to be built. I like the prophets better than that. But if I'm going to read Old Testament, man, I like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. I like the stories. You read the prophets, it seems to be doom and gloom and repetitive over and over. So we don't generally tend to spend a ton of time on that. But we should. Because the Old Testament prophets tell us about the Messiah. Jesus was telling him that if he wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah, remember what the prophet Isaiah said. I'm just going to read through three of these. I I brought up about seven and I had to kind of whittle it down just for time's sake. Isaiah 29, 18 and 19. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then one more, Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I'm going to take us on a little bit of a tour of some of the magnificent things which Jesus did and are recorded in the gospel narratives. Some things which most Christians probably look at sometimes with wrongful understanding of what's going on and why we're being taught that. And once again, I started, when I wrote this sermon, I had several more of these and I had to kind of trim it down for time's sake. Matthew chapter 9, 27 through 30. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men, followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. People have looked at this passage and a couple others similar to it for millennia and gotten the wrong understanding of what was going on here and what we were being what we were being told and why 
This was placed in Scripture. First, we see that the men asked Jesus to have mercy on them. And truthfully, wouldn't you ask for this? If you were blind and you had heard that this guy can heal people, wouldn't you say, have mercy on me? Do a kindness for me, a big one. And it surely was mercy. But understand that Jesus did not heal them just because he was a merciful person. He was merciful. And we do see sometimes that some of his motivation was partially from mercy. And there is an element of mercy in this miracle. But this is not why Jesus healed people. If mercy was the primary motivation behind his healings, we could have expected something different than this. We know from other passages that he could heal from a distance. So if he just wanted to be merciful, why not just heal everybody all at once? Just snap his fingers and make it so. Because that wasn't his primary reason for performing healings. People have also gathered from this and other passages that Jesus was doing it based solely upon people's faith. And therefore, since he and his apostles healed, we should also be able to be faith healers. If only people will just believe enough. This also is not why Jesus was healing. Mark chapter 7, verses 32 through 37. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven and he sighed and said to him, Ephesah, I can't pronounce that word. Ephesah, that is, be opened. And his ears were open. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In the first healing we read, Jesus made the blind to see. Here he makes, he heals the deaf and the dumb. Here is one in which he does a different miracle, and we see a glimpse of his purpose in doing them. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why? Do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise 
pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home and the crowd saw it and they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus was performing his miracles, healing the deaf, dumb, and blind kid. And he healed men lame for decades to demonstrate who he was, that people would glorify God. In fact, other miracles that Jesus performed, such as his feeding of the 5,000, were also events which had as their primary focus to demonstrate without question to those who knew what they were looking for that he was in fact the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament about which Isaiah and many others spoke and told people what to look for that they would see God. There are many others, but you're probably familiar enough with them to see how they fit in these passages from Isaiah. Dead are raised, poor are preached salvation, and people are fed. We only read a few, but there are so many others, both in the prophecies and in the Old Testament and in the fulfillment in the Gospels. We just don't have room to go through all of them. It would take hours. Here is one last one in which Jesus, he just spells it out clear. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then it goes on to show that he heals him. This was the ID that proved who Jesus was. It was done then and recorded for us that all who saw it then or read of it now may know as John did when he got his answer sitting in that prison cell. That he wasn't wrong. That he hadn't misremembered it or misheard something. That could allay his doubts. That he hadn't wasted his life preaching to the people about somebody that now he's wondering whether or not it was true. He had the absolute proof he needed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John had guided people to him for all of his ministry. It was the focus of his life. And it was the most important thing anybody could ever do. Lead people to the Messiah. It was for this reason that Jesus was doing these miracles, showing them that he was who he said he was, the Christ, the one in which their lives could be invested without fear that they had wasted their lives, and that they could place their eternal life in his hands. 
because he had power over everything in life, including death. All of us, at some point, are going to die. That's just how things are since the fall of creation in Eden. The question is, will you rise again with Christ? And the answer is, if He is your Lord and Savior, yes. If He's not, no. If you haven't made that decision, please do today. Please stand as we sing.